This episode is brought to you by Videoblox. Go to videoblox.com slash nofilmschool to get all the stock video you can imagine for only $149 a year. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. And it's September 21st, 2017. On this week's show, a whole lot of indie love at the Emmys, what we should make of all the hubbub around Darren Aronofsky's mother, the film Not His Mom, wrap-ups from the Toronto and Camden International Film Festival, and an Ask No Film School, the perennial question of why your film isn't getting into festivals. Plus, as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, and indie film releases. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Today is the first day of Rosh Hashanah, so we want to wish a sweet and happy new year to those of you who celebrate. Hi, John. Hey. You don't celebrate, but I wish you a happy new year anyway. Thanks. Um, I feel like I should just take this moment at the top of the show since we usually do all our shout outs and stuff at the end of the show and I mean, might as well split it up this week. But as many of you listeners have heard week after week for the past month. I've been asking for you guys to pledge to my Kickstarter, and we successfully funded it um, as of Saturday of last week. So thank you to everyone who uh, supported me and who spread the link around and who decided to even you know give $2 or $5. Uh, we couldn't have done it without you, and it was really successful, and I'm now looking forward to actually shooting the damn thing. I'm glad we have lots of reasons to celebrate. Uh, and you can all celebrate that it's just the two of us today, just the two of us here at No Film School, because, uh, yeah, we're spread out all over the place working on stuff. So John and I are going to bring you the news. In addition to my colleague, Mr. Fusco, some people are definitely celebrating this week, and those are the Emmy winners, which, you know, might be John Fusco in the future, or me, you never know. Uh, or you, dear listeners. Or you. It's not all about us here. It's mostly about us. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Sunday's award show was the least watched of all time, but it was probably the most exciting for indie filmmakers, and lots and lots of firsts happened. And firsts, I think, are always good for those of us playing outside the sandbox. So Lena Waithe became the first African-American woman to win an Emmy for Outstanding Writing in a Comedy Series for the amazing Thanksgiving episode of Aziz Ansari's Netflix series Master of None. Did you see that one? Yeah. I loved it. I think it was well-deserved. Anyway, she uh, her indie roots come from her early days as assistant to directors Ava DuVernay and Gina Prince-Bythewood. And her speech contained motivational words for any of us trying to get our creative voices out there. She said... The things that make us different, those are our superpowers. Every day when you walk out the door, put on your imaginary cape and go out there and conquer the world, because the world would not be as beautiful if we weren't in it. Yeah, I like that. Superhero. Of course, the big indie win went to Reed Morano, who won a directing Emmy for The Handmaid's Tale and was the first woman to win in the category for over 20 years. In case you missed us talking about Reed Morano a zillion times before, she's an indie cinematographer known for Kill Your Darlings, The Skeleton Twins, and Meadowland, which she also directed. The Handmaid's Tale won five awards, somewhat surprisingly making Hulu, rather than Netflix or Amazon, the first streaming service to win the Emmy for Outstanding Drama Series. By the way, Reed Morano was also Emmy-nominated this year for her work as a cinematographer on HBO's Divorce. I don't suspect she gets a lot of sleep, so superhero indeed. 
Other firsts include Donald Glover, who was the first black director to win Best Director for a Comedy Series for his show Atlanta. Like, what? How is that the first ever? It's shocking. We actually have a cool interview with that show's DP, Christian Sprenger, up on nofilmschool.com. And finally, Riz Ahmed won Best Lead Actor in a Limited Series or Movie for his role in HBO's The Night Of, thus becoming the first male actor of South Asian descent to win an acting Emmy. Again, first ever in 2017. What? So, congrats, everyone. We think this bodes well for what's to come for our industry. So, Darren Aronofsky's much-anticipated film Mother finally hit theaters last week, and the results were very, very bad for its studio. Womp womp. I haven't had a chance to see the film yet, but everyone I've talked to has either completely loved it or been absolutely appalled by it. A lot of other people on social media have taken the route of, um, who cares what you think about it? It is worth seeing because it is something wholly unique. To me, a film that stirs up this much controversy is definitely worth checking out, merely for the experience of what it's actually physically like to watch it. While the film has been mostly well-received by critics, it's currently sitting at a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes, and it has a super rare and studio-head-dreaded F on Cinema Score, which made a lot of news last week. Based in Las Vegas, CinemaScore surveys audiences every weekend to gauge their reactions to new movies and see what effect that might have on box office returns. Other movies to earn the rare distinction are Steven Soderbergh's Solaris remake, Andrew Dominic's Killing Them Softly, William Friedkin's Bug, and I Know Who Killed Me. So, not exactly crowd-pleasers. That cinema score correctly predicted a dismal box office return, as the film only made $7.5 million in its opening over 2,000 theaters. As my friend Zach Scharf from IndieWire put it, quote, But while Mother may represent a financial disappointment for Paramount, it certainly marks a creative victory. No movie this year is earning as much of a response from critics and audiences as this one. Anyone who sees it comes out with such a vigorous opinion about it that Mother has led to the kind of discussions, hot takes, theorizing, and debates that cinema rarely ever sees in the age of blockbusters and studio tentpoles. A major studio like Paramount deserves credit for taking a chance on something as polarizing on Mother, especially because all major studios refuse to do just that. Paramount's president of marketing and distribution would certainly agree with Scharf's assessment of the film's release, as she came to its defense in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter earlier this week, saying, This movie is very audacious and brave. You are talking about a director at the top of his game, and an actress at the top of her game. They made a movie that was intended to be bold. Everyone wants original filmmaking, and everyone celebrates Netflix when they tell a story no one else wants to tell. This is our version. We don't want all movies to be safe, and it's okay if some people don't like it. I, for one, am also happy Paramount decided to distribute this film to a wide audience and totally agree with both Scharf and Megan Colligan's take on the situation. I still have no idea what the plot is for this movie, and I'm still looking forward to seeing it and forming an opinion for myself, regardless of what audiences or other friends may have been saying. You tell him, John Fusco. Now some notes to wrap up the Toronto International Film Festival, which we've mentioned on the last couple shows. The fest wrapped on Sunday and launched several of its 339 titles into sales and awards season. TIFF actually doesn't give out nearly as many awards as other festivals its size, but the big one to note is the Grolsch People's Choice Award, as this turns out to be a pretty hot Oscar predictor. Best Picture Oscar winners that first won at TIFF were 12 Years a Slave, The King's Speech, Slumdog Millionaire, and American Beauty, and many more became nominees. So this year's winner? Drumroll, please. (laughs) Wow. 
It's a very giant footstep sounding drum roll. But anyway, thanks, John. Mm -hmm. So the winner is Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which our own John Fusco chose as his most anticipated film. Yeah. Yeah. He's like some kind of Oscar predictor. Cool. Also, we published our annual report of which cameras were used by the TIFF filmmakers, and it was an interesting one. As usual, Ari's dominated the narratives and Sony's dominated the docs. And of course, now it has become standard that at least one feature was shot with an iPhone. There were a couple Black Magic Ursas thrown in for good measure. Surprisingly, at least among the productions that responded to us, there wasn't a red or a cannon in the bunch, but there were some fascinating innovations. The one that stuck out most to me was Chinese director Xu Bing's Dragonfly Eyes, which used 10,000 hours of cloud-based surveillance footage to create a fictional feature. The director told us, quote, All of the surveillance videos in the film were downloaded from the public cloud database. So technically, we didn't choose a camera to shoot the film. We don't have a cameraman. Those surveillance cameras were our cinematographer. Doesn't that sound so interesting? I can't wait to see it. Yeah, it's pretty, it sounds pretty easy, too. Makes production a lot easier if you don't have to film anything, I think. <laughs> well, it sounds easy to get the footage, but then if it's 10,000 hours to craft a story out of it when you had nothing to do with, with making the, like, the materials, got to be an insane challenge. I'm sure he like sped through it, you know? But yeah, good job, man. It feels a little stalkery. It's fascinating. Anyway, as you know, fall festival season is in full swing, and I had the great pleasure of once again attending one that's a little bit off the beaten path, but becoming increasingly influential in the documentary world. It's the Camden International Film Festival run by the Points North Institute up in Maine. You've heard us talk about Points North's various opportunities for filmmakers on the show, and in fact, this year a couple of the fellows at the festival first found out about those opportunities at No Film School, so holla. Anyway, last year I talked about the value of attending smaller festivals like this one because of the more intimate access you get to industry executives and other festival guests. Camden is such a small town and it's two hours away from the biggest airport in the area, so chances are good that anybody who's not obviously local, and you can tell because they all wear the main signature lobster hats, is part of the film world. (laughs) I have one of those hats. I bet you do. Yeah. Don't wear it if you're at Camden International Film Festival because no one will talk to you. Okay. Anyway, point is if you put yourself out there just a little bit and talk to strangers, it will likely benefit you and your projects. So this year, I want to share a bit about the festival's signature event, the Points North Pitch. This is the reason that so many big-name industry gatekeepers make the trek to this festival. Thirteen of them, in fact, representing doc heavyweights like Sundance, Tribeca, Ford Foundation, and other funders and executive producers, sit on a pitch stage and hear pitches from six pre-selected projects that are seeking support. And they give those pitches feedback. And it all happens in public at the gorgeous Camden Opera House in front of more than 400 people. As Christopher Campbell from Film School Rejects pointed out, this is one of the few times that the public gets to see the documentary sausage being made. The experience is extremely valuable for any filmmaker, doc or otherwise, to hear people pitch and hear critiques of those pitches. We all need to raise money for our films, which is why I actually recorded a Pitching 101 podcast episode for next Monday with some of the decision makers from that very stage. This year's pitch winner was one that contained many of the elements that these experts advocate for when they talk about how to do a good pitch. Those include real urgency in the subject matter, genuine emotion in the spoken pitch, and a fascinating and well-crafted trailer. 
The movie that won is called Midnight Traveler, and it's about one of our own. Afghan filmmaker Hassan Fazili was issued a Taliban death sentence after his last film, and thus he began a journey to escape the country with his wife Fatima, who's also a filmmaker, and their baby daughter. They're actually still on the run, and they've gone through several countries so far, documenting the entire thing with their cell phones. The footage has been regularly smuggled out to producer Emily Madavian, who was in Camden presenting the pitch as Fazili is still in hiding abroad. So they're taking this footage and making it into a one-of-a-kind point of view, you know, first-person perspective of being a refugee. The pitch was so effective and impactful that Madavian was offered $10,000 from the Ford Foundation's Just Films on the spot, in part to help Fazili's family get the appropriate legal help to get into a more stable country. So thank you, Camden International Film Festival, for having me at your beautiful event and for providing filmmakers the platform to get important projects like this one out into the world. And I encourage all of our listeners who are making docs to look at the Points North fellowships and labs throughout the year to take advantage of these amazing opportunities. And now on to gear news for this week. Uh, Here are just a few items to tide you over until Charles gets back so he can share some more news out of IBC, which has been going on for the past week. So Sony has taken the spectacular phase detection autofocus from its A9 and put it in a video camera, the Z90. The new PXW Z90 is a very attractive package for filmmakers who want an all-in-one tool for under $3,000, with a target price point of $2,799. So among the host of standard for 2017 features, including... 3840 by 2160 recording, HD up to 120 frames per second, a super slow motion mode, and a 12x zoom, there are a few standout features, including built-in Wi-Fi streaming. However, it's in the autofocus arena where this camera will really shine. The Z90 is the first motion picture implementation of the phase detect autofocus from the popular A9 stills camera, as I said before. The A9, of course, isn't intended as a cinema camera like the FS7 is, and while the A7S isn't officially a quote-unquote movie camera, it's clearly the camera that Sony knows filmmakers are buying. However, the A9 can shoot video, and the autofocus on the A9 in video mode is simply out of this world, as Charles Hayne would say. Charles also got a chance to check out the feature at IBC, and he said, quote, It felt almost psychic like it was reading your mind to know where you were panning ahead of time so it could arrive to focus on a subject as you pan to it. This, of course, is impossible, but it truly felt like that. Pretty crazy. For a full list of tech specs, you can check out the full article on No Film School. Also at IBC, Atomos announced an affordable Sumo 19M production monitor. We first saw Atomos's Sumo at NAB earlier this year. It's a much bigger more bright version of any monitor they'd ever released before, and now Atomos has released a monitor-only variant dubbed the Sumo 19M. This slimmer, less expensive version is ideal for professional shooters looking for an affordable solution on set. Priced at just $1,995, the Sumo 19M has many of the same features as its counterpart, or bigger brother, but it lacks the ability to record. The 19-inch HDR monitor touts a 1920x1080 resolution with 1200-nit brightness and wide viewing angle capable of displaying 4K and HD sources. The redesigned interface provides easy access to scopes on the screen as an overlay. Additionally, there are dedicated input selection buttons on the touchscreen user interface so you can make A-B comparisons. 
Finally, in more monitor news, it's also worth mentioning quickly that there's been an upgrade to our favorite production monitor from the past year. Small HD has doubled the nits on its 17-inch production monitor, the 1703P3, providing the model with 450 more nits for only $200 more. The daylight viewable model now has 900 nits and is otherwise pretty identical to its predecessor. It comes in at $36.99. Yeah, and just to clarify, the 1703P3 is the 450-nit monitor, and the 1703P3X is the 900-nit monitor. And this makes me, these last two uh, news items make me feel like we should do a monitor shootout, because we've done LED comparisons and lens comparisons, but there's so many monitors now. Yeah, we'd have to try the 1703P3XT and the 1703P3XE and the 1703P3XD models, too. It makes me have to pee, 3XD. the best models <laughs> of small HD P3XT monitors. R2D2. Okay, cool. so now let's uh, move on to a sponsor break. Whoa, they're <laughs> back. And we'll be back after with Ask No Film School. We've all been there. You're on deadline for a project and you need some footage that you just don't have. You're faced with using something not quite right or cutting a segment altogether because high quality stock footage is way too expensive or hard to come by. Well, thankfully, those days may be over because now you can get studio quality stock plus After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and sound effects for a fraction of the cost from the Videoblocks member library. Plus, get exclusive discounts on millions of additional marketplace clips where you save 40% and you're supporting other filmmakers too because the original artists take home 100% of the sale price of Marketplace Clips. All the content is royalty-free, so you can use it for commercial and personal projects. And new clips are added regularly, so there's always something fresh to download. Go to videoblocks.com slash nofilmschool to get all the stock footage you can imagine for only $149 a year. That's Videoblocks, V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash nofilmschool to save on millions of studio quality clips from Videoblocks. And we are back this week on Ask No Film School. Stephen Lanis wrote on the boards last week to ask the perennial question, why am I not getting into festivals? Stephen is submitting his second short to festivals, and he says, quote, While it is nowhere near perfect by any means, I thought it was a huge improvement on the first, and I expected it to get into at least one festival. Of the 15 or so responses I've gotten so far, nope. Ah. So, Liz, what the hell? Why is he not getting his short into these festivals? Well, I will mention that he links to the film uh on our boards for specific feedback. So if any of you listening want to, you know, provide your input, it'll be there. I'm not going to give feedback on this specific film, but I'm going to respond to the question because it's one that I'm sure many, many of you can relate to. And that's the first thing, Stephen. You are not alone by any means. Nope. In 2015, in fact, there were 8,061 short films submitted to the Sundance Film Festival. And do you know how many got in? 60. That's less than 1%. And I'm not saying that to discourage any of you. It's just a reality check about your chances and a reminder that getting in or not has very little to do with you and your film. Festival programmers choose their films for all kinds of reasons. Everything from politics to name recognition to it happens to fit in with their theme that year to they just got laid before they watched it. Like you really don't know. What? Because you're in a really good mood and you're like, yes, to every film. Oh. Yeah. 
believe me, been there. Okay, how? <laughs> oof, I don't want to hear that story. Sorry. That's uh. Anyway, we're not recommending that, <laughs> listeners. So your if body's you're... a temple. Yeah, so you treat it well. <laughs> don't, by... don't let other people use it. For, your, <laughs> for the gain of your short film. Okay, anyways, if you are determined to play at a festival despite the odds, then I suggest you try to improve your odds. So apply for festivals where there might be less competition or where you have a distinct advantage. For example, look for local or regional festivals that might favor filmmakers from your area. Look for film festivals that specialize in the topic area of your film, like environmental or social justice or comedy festivals. You catch my drift. And if you can let go of the festival idea, do your own premiere in person or online or both. You could even make it a fundraiser for your next film if you hold a screening and party and charge for it. Or submit it to Vimeo Staff Picks or Short of the Week or another online platform that could give you some shine. Or if all else fails, upload it to YouTube directly and have some fun with creating a social media marketing campaign for it. Get it out there yourself. Boy, is that a lot of fun. <laughs> Social <laughs> no, <the> media marketing. <laughs> the point is you could have fun with it. You could do something innovative to to get the word out yeah, there. Yeah, totally. Um, the good news is there's more ways than ever for shorts to be seen, way beyond the festival circuit. So now you just have to make something really, really good and unfortunately kind of keep up the hustle to find your audience. So good luck, Stephen, and to all of you with shorts out there. And thank you so much to the No Film Schoolers who provided feedback to Stephen on our boards. Actually, at South by Southwest last year, um, I covered a panel that Jason Sondi from Short of the Week uh, was a part of. And he talked about pretty much exactly that, how film festivals are kind of, you know, they're not dying. And they're certainly a uh, a good place to go to network um, and to get, you know, seen by more people in the industry but in terms of getting a wider audience you're going to get a wider audience online you know you're more people are going to see it and and one thing that struck me that he said was it's not about like how many views you get it's about the right kind of views um so the when the right people are viewing it and and places like vimeo and short of the week really do a good job of filtering uh you and your project out from the rest of the clutter of videos that are out there on the internet so it's definitely a viable option i'll link to that post because i don't really remember what else was in there but there are some nuggets and now into some movies opening this week on vod you can catch negative it is coming out on september 22nd with his latest film joshua caldwell set out to make a 100 million dollar looking action thriller for only one hundred thousand dollars Negative set in the American Southwest and follows Natalie, a former British spy who flees Los Angeles for Phoenix after a deal with a cartel goes wrong. She's joined by Hollis, a street photographer who has put his life at risk by taking Natalie's photo at the wrong time and in the wrong place. Caldwell wrote an article for us detailing all the production hacks he used to pull off this feat, and you can check it out on nofilmschool.com. It is called How We Hacked Production to Make a Full-Scale Spy Thriller for $100,000. It's a really cool article, and it's getting tons of great responses on the site, so definitely check it out. And meanwhile, Andrew Kahn's Tribeca documentary about three adults in inner-city Indianapolis who are attending night school in hopes of getting their high school diplomas is coming to Netflix next Tuesday. The film is called Night School, and it's one of a slew of films from the festival circuit of the past couple years that deal with the African-American experience, including many we've covered, like Whose Streets, For Akeem, and Blood is at the Doorstep. 
If you're interested in what's going on in the States right now, it's an important moment to watch these films kind of as a group and start to fill out that picture to get some context for current events. And fun fact, a quote from my No Film School article about the film appears in its trailer. Isn't the quote like, Terrific. <laughs> I think it's in like quotes. Yeah, something like that. It's like astonishingly interesting. There you go. <laughs> and coming to HBO on September twenty third is Assassin's Creed. Justin Kurzel directed this video game adaptation, which was actually surprisingly better than many other video game movies that have come out in the past. If you're unfamiliar with Assassin's Creed, the series is about a man who time travels through the past to inhabit the body of one of his secret cult warrior ancestors. The film is an origin story for the character of Callum Lynch, who explores the memories of his ancestor Aguilar de Nera and gains the skills of a master assassin before taking on the secret Templar society. Maybe part of the reason it's a cut above the other entries in this genre is because of Michael Fassbender's involvement. Not only does he play the aforementioned lead, but as a fan of the series, he went ahead and took the lead on producing the thing as well. I spoke to Justin Kurzel about the challenges of making the leap from indie films to blockbuster ahead of the film's theatrical release last year, and you can listen to the podcast. It's called Assassin's Creed Justin Kurzel on Keeping Your Vision and Breaking the Video Game Curse. There are several great indies coming to theaters this week as well. Tomorrow, Friday, Bobby Jean is coming out. It received the Tribeca Documentary Juror Award this year. It's a love story portraying the dilemmas and inevitable consequences of ambition. It's a film about a woman's fight for independence, a woman trying to succeed with her own art in the extremely competitive world of dance. It's directed by Elvira Lind, and I will say that I I never found the description of this film particularly compelling, but then the Tribeca jurors were so over the moon and unanimous about its selection, and every single filmmaker who I know who has seen it was blown away. So I think it's one of those like filmmaker films about the struggle to make art. It's supposed to be amazing. And another movie that we caught on the festival circuit this year is coming out in theaters on September 22nd on Friday. It's called Unrest. This was one of Emily's favorite movies at Sundance last year. And I'll just, you know, briefly do a synopsis of the film since that, I think, really makes the intrigue speak for itself. One day, Jennifer Bray woke up to find that her life had been stolen from her. The newly engaged Harvard PhD student couldn't write her own name. She couldn't get out of bed. When she tried, she would collapse on the ground in pain and under exhaustion. She could barely talk. She couldn't even draw a circle. Despite extensive tests and examinations, doctors came up empty-handed as to what was going on with her. In a moment of desperation, Bray picked up a camera. As she began documenting her struggle from her bedroom, her claustrophobic world opened up. She shared her videos online and found an extensive community of people with similar symptoms. Their diagnosis? A little-known disorder called myalgic encephalomyelitis, commonly referred to as chronic fatigue syndrome. For her own sake, and for that of her disease's fellow victims, she decided to make a documentary. But how was she going to make a movie when she couldn't leave her own bed? What's more, she didn't know a single filmmaker. Miraculously, she assembled a global production team and filmed nearly all of Runrest without leaving her bed, utilizing inventive technological methods so that she could direct the film remotely. She raised over $200,000 on Kickstarter by mobilizing the International Emmy community, which wanted its story told for the first time on a public stage. You can read Emily's interview with Bray, where she details her incredible story on nofilmschool.com. And now for some upcoming grant deadlines. 
If you are a UK-based writer with a feature or short film script from any genre, you could be one of three projects selected for the BAFTA Rowcliffe Writing Film Call with the deadline of September 26th. Rockliffe, in partnership with BAFTA, runs the BAFTA Rockliffe New Writing Competition and Showcase, an initiative which has connected scores of aspiring British writers and filmmakers with agents, development execs, and established industry members. These three finalists receive a fantastic industry showcase at BAFTA's London HQ with professional actors and directors, industry introductions, access to bespoke masterclasses, not just any masterclasses, and an in-depth script report on your complete screenplay, a featured spot on the forum list, and a tailored career planning and profile building session to provide support in navigating the industry. And on September 30th, there's a deadline for the Green Room Filmmaker Fund to celebrate the launch of the Green Room, which is a global filmmaker networking app, and promote independent filmmaking as a whole, Green Room have created a film fund of $50,000 to be awarded to projects registered through its network. So that means if you're a filmmaker with any projects, including fiction, nonfiction, short films, docs, experimental, at any stage of production, you could score 50 k in this, their first ever grant. Their international jury will select the successful projects over four funding rounds. The number of projects selected and their respective funding are at the discretion of the jury and selection committee. And finally, the Roy Dean grant from the Hart Productions has another deadline on September 30th. This fall, the Roy Dean grant will give out 3K in cash and over 30K of in-kind services and products and is open for shorts, docs, and feature films with a budget under $500,000. And as I've mentioned on the show before, this one is worth applying to because it's one of the few grants that provides feedback and consultations with every single project uh, that applies. And it's like a a three-time-a-year thing, right? Yeah. Yeah, two or three times. And now moving on to festival deadlines. South by Southwest has their deadline on September 22nd, tomorrow. It takes place in Austin, Texas from March 9th to the 18th next year. And, of course, this is definitely one of our favorite festivals and one of the most well-known film festivals in the country of the United States of America. Of course, it's also known for its great panels and the concurrently running music and technology expos. So if you feel your film is worthy, or even if you're like, maybe this is worthy or maybe not, this is definitely one to submit to. Agreed. And I'll mention that's the official deadline. There's still a late deadline next month, but it costs a heck of a lot more. So if you can get it in by Friday, you should definitely do it. And on September 28th is the deadline for the Atlanta Film Festival, which takes place April 13th to the 22nd in Atlanta. Believe it or not, this festival is now approaching its 42nd year. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival, and it's the Southeast's preeminent celebration of cinema and the flagship production of the Atlanta Film Society. It's, of course, been named a top 50 film festival worth the entry fee and one of the 25 coolest film festivals in the world by Movie Maker Magazine. And it has cash prizes. So check it out. And sticking around the neighborhood of the Southeast United States, the Nashville Film Festival has a deadline of September 29th. This one takes place May 10th to the 19th, and it offers $65,000 in cash and in-kind sponsor prizes to filmmakers, with winners selected by industry power players, including studio reps, producers, and fellow filmmakers. It's also Academy Award qualifying for shorts in the narrative, animated, and documentary categories. And now we approach the segment, Put on Your Glasses, Hang Out with Owls, because you are about to receive some weekly words of wisdom. And here are mine. I caught one of IFP Film Week's Filmmaker Magazine panels this weekend, and I got to see Sean Baker give a great talk about the path of his entire career. 
It's crazy to think that Baker really only garnered public attention after the release of Tangerine in 2015 because he'd already made five films prior to that and had a hit TV show in Greg the Bunny that ran for years over multiple reincarnations across at least three different channels. What I found most inspiring in the talk, however, was that even after the success of Tangerine, Baker still stuck to the guerrilla filmmaking ideals that have made him such an exciting filmmaker to watch. For his first film, Takeout, Baker remembered, we had to shoot at this Chinese takeout place on the Upper West Side. Obviously, we didn't have the money to buy them out and own the location, so we just basically promised them that we would not interfere with their customers, that they could keep the business open, and that we were small enough where we'd be in the shadows. We've continued to do that throughout my career. Donut Time in Tangerine, in the Florida Project, the hotel was still running. It's something that we've learned how to do. When asked by an audience member how they were able to get these locations to agree so readily, Baker replied, When you're looking for locations in general, it's really about respect. Respect for their business. It's their livelihood. You can't just go in there because it's not your place. Our approach was really bonding with them, befriending them, especially with Tangerine. In Los Angeles, the entire town is very savvy to this. Locations are really expensive, but our producers took the time to go and meet business owners, find a connection, tell them about what we were doing, why we were doing it, and how what we were doing was different, and they basically got every location in Tangerine for free. You should read the entire article for more on his run-and-gun filmmaking strategies because there were a lot of super useful tips in there. It was a really uh, interesting talk, and this whole like run-and-gun thing was pretty much the core of it, as far as I could tell, in picking apart the quotes yesterday. Yeah, much respect to that guy. I'm so glad you went to that panel. I hope we can get him on the podcast. Yeah, me too. As John mentioned, Sean Baker's talk was part of Independent Film Week, which is still going on. We're right smack in the middle of it. And we will be publishing several articles from other really great talks and panels that they did. So I'll link to those in the podcast post and keep your eye on the site. Meanwhile, last week, the Film Society of Lincoln Center showed a retrospective of work by Jane Campion. And that's where my weekly words of wisdom come from. The week kicked off with a conversation between the prolific filmmaker herself and the Film Society's Dennis Lim, which was covered by No Film School writer Sophia Harvey. So if you're not familiar with Campion, she has won a Palme d'Or and an Oscar, you know, no big deal. But she's recently gained recognition for her television work on Top of the Lake, which is in its second season. We have spoken endlessly about this golden age of television on the podcast, but it was interesting to hear it confirmed by someone who's made the transition from film to TV so successfully. She said she had an epiphany about doing TV upon seeing an episode of Deadwood, which I actually have never seen, but now feel very intrigued by. Campion said, quote, I rose from my chair and I went, oh, my God, they're letting them do this. It was so brave and amazing, incredible and raw. Campion continued, this is where the freedom is. This is where they let you do what you want. Of course, she's talking about television. This was at a particular moment when Campion felt the film industry was sort of becoming stale and too consumer-oriented. She said, quote, When I first fell in love with cinema, it felt like the most dangerous, exciting, edgy place you could explore ideas. But as time went on, it felt like a more and more conservative, pleasing event. And according to her, TV is the place to be right now if you want freedom for exploration. So food for thought for all you filmmakers out there. And you will get a heck of a lot more food for thought on next Monday's podcast. I mentioned it earlier in the show. I recorded it at Camden International Film Festival. It's going to be Pitching 101, How to Raise Money for Your Film. This one is going to be, I think, extremely helpful to any filmmaker who's trying to get your film funded, which is basically any filmmaker. 
I have three guests from Tribeca Film Institute, Naked Edge Films, and Fork Films who all fund films, and they estimate that they've heard over 10,000 pitches between them. They gave so much top-notch advice on what, and importantly, what not to do when you're trying to get support for your project. I really think it's going to be one of our most useful episodes ever, so look out for that next Monday. Meanwhile, you can read about everything we talked about on this week's show in the podcast post and all over the site, nofilmschool.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app and rate us on iTunes with those five shiny gold stars. And stay in touch. I am at LizFilm on Twitter. I'm John Fusco. Uh, okay, that's not my Twitter <laughs> handle, though. My Twitter handle is uh, Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, John, Jim, John, Jim. Jim, 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 John, Jim. Someone referred to me as JJJ the other day. I thought that was kind of, kind of cool. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Triple J is actually the name of an Australian radio station. So. And you're going to live in Australia one day. One day. Good day. One good day. And we're all on Twitter at No Film School. So see you next week. Shana Tava.